Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When it comes to music, not all years are created equal. Okay, I know every year features some great new songs from some great new bands. But over the long term, this great music isn't equally distributed. Sometimes, maybe... I don't know, once in a decade, but usually less, we run into what can only be described as an embarrassment of riches. And what I mean by that is we go through a a period, usually a fairly short period, where every week, even every day, seems to bring something absolutely amazing. Well, like when? Okay, well, uh, 1955 maybe, with uh, Elvis and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Bo Diddley and Bill Haley and the Comets. They all exploded into public consciousness that year, 1955, the birth of rock and roll. 1965, the Beatles and everything they were doing. The rise of the Rolling Stones with satisfaction. Bob Dylan releases Like a Rolling Stone for Highway 61 Revisited after going electric. Actually, when you think about it, rock's most prolific years, at least when it came to being an agent for social change and a driver of Western culture, were 65, 66, 67, 68, and 69. After that, well, we might consider 1977, punk, the beginning of New Wave, the era of post-punk and all that came with it. But then there was this long fallow period, lots of disco, lots of pop, lots of hair metal, which was great if you were into that kind of thing, but not exactly music that changed the world, if you know what I mean. But then came one particular year. If you look back on it, it's absolutely astounding at what happened, what was released and the music that we're still talking about that came from that year. By the time the calendar turned, everything, and I mean everything, was different. This is a look back on the amazing year that was 1991. This is the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross. When we look back on everything that happened in 1991, it's absolutely mind-boggling how important that year became to the history of our music. It's one of those watershed years that historians talk about. It was filled with hinge points, events upon which the future shifted. Now, let's think back to that. Before the calendar flipped from 1990, rock was dominated by a couple of sounds that were running out of steam. One was hair metal. It had been going strong for about eight years, but... It was overexposed and tired. Too many hair metal bands were in circulation, diluting any quality that might have been there. And too many of these bands were releasing power ballads, which got real old real fast. 
Then there were the classic rockers, Pink Floyd and the Rolling Stones, Eric Clapton, Dire Straits, Elton John, Leonard Skinner, and others who had been rediscovered and revitalized, filling stadiums playing their old hits, which, hey, was fine, but after a while, uh, that well kind of ran dry. Meanwhile, pop music had been in the descendant. The generation of kids who were into New Kids on the Block and Tiffany and Debbie Gibson had aged out of their pop phase, and they certainly weren't interested in moving on to Whitney Houston and Fleetwood Mac. And besides, pop had proven itself to be a hollow sham, thanks to the Millie Vanilli Grammy scandal. There were other factors affecting music, too. Generation X was in their late high school and early college years, and they found a world to be a very weird place. There was a brutal recession. There was the first Gulf War, the conservatism of the Reagan-Bush years, the cultural dominance of the baby boomers. And speaking of which, there was a real fear that for the first time in history, this generation, Generation X, would not be able to achieve the same standard of living as their parents. They were angry and worried and scared and frustrated and underemployed. But as far as they were concerned, there was no music being made that reflected how they felt. All these conditions conspired to bring about massive social change and a full-scale sea change with music. Actually, it was a tectonic shift with a magnitude of like 9.9. There were early signs that something was going on. Manchester had swept through the UK following an explosion of dance culture through the 1980s. And in North America, things had turned kind of aggressive in some quarters. Industrial music and hardcore, for example. And alternative rock had happily existed in a parallel universe for at least 15 years and was still doing fine. But in 1991, the barrier between the two rock universes collapsed and alternative rock flooded into the mainstream. This tsunami was so big that by the time the year was over, alternative had pretty much effectively ceased to be alternative. It had become the mainstream. This is why it'll be fun to go through 1991 and look at the quakes and aftershocks. The first couple of months of 1991 were pretty much more of what 1990 offered, which was fine, but uh, progress, I guess you could say, was slow and incremental. There was something interesting about the Grammy Awards that year. For the first time ever, there was a category recognizing alternative artists, and the winner was Sinead O'Connor for her I Do Not Want What I Haven't Got album. Now, that was something. The stodgy old Grammy Awards had finally noticed that there was this other type of rock music. And then came the release of R.E.M.'s Out of Time album on March 12th. This was the follow-up to 1998's Green album, which was their first record as a major label band. R.E.M. had been an indie group for the first five albums of their career. The sixth, Green, did quite well, reaching into the top 20 in Canada, the U.S., and Australia, and into the top 30 in the U.K., the subsequent tour was also successful, and expectations for the seventh album were rather high. Could they deliver? Well, yes, they did. Out of Time is the record that turned R.E.M. from a cult band, a big cult band, but one nevertheless, into major international stars. This record spent 109 weeks on the U.S. charts and 183 weeks on the U.K. charts. It reached number one in the U.S., Britain, Canada, France, the Netherlands, and Italy, and it was top five in Australia, New Zealand, Norway, Sweden, and Switzerland. Worldwide sales were nearly five million, and the following February, it won three Grammy Awards, including Best Alternative Album. And this was from this former indie band from some college town in Georgia?
R.E.M. and Losing My Religion from the Out of Time album. If this culty band could be this successful with mainstream audiences, did this mean music was shifting? Well, at the time, the answer was maybe, but we would have to wait a little bit longer before we found out for sure. Meanwhile, there was a structural shift in the music industry. This fundamentally changed our knowledge of who was buying what. Up until May 24th, 1991, record sales were estimates. They were nothing more than guesses. Every week, phone calls were made to record stores across America, asking these stores how many records they thought they sold of each album and single. Those who really cared about accuracy had to physically go through all the inventory to count up what had left the store in the last seven days. Others just guessed. Others just made up numbers. Whatever data was returned went into making up the official charts for the industry, which is the way everybody kept score and how artists ultimately got paid. In other words, with this system, sales numbers were open to all kinds of inaccuracies and manipulation and lies. Not a good way to run an industry. Record executives pushed for change. They'd known for years that the number of records they shipped out the door did not match what the stores said were sold or unsold. But that all changed on May 25, 1991, when a new system called SoundScan came into operation. Instead of guessing how many records were sold, a barcode reader at the cash register counted the record as being sold as it was being paid for, so sales were counted one by one. When the first SoundScan chart was published on May 25, 1991, the differences between the old system and the new one were stark. Two genres of music were found to have been greatly underrepresented under the old system. The first was country, and the second was alternative. Record labels had long known that marginal genres weren't being counted properly by humans because of error or bias or whatever. But now that SoundScan gave an accurate count of what was actually being sold, labels finally began to understand what kinds of music was resonating with the public. That means record executives could order their people to pursue, sign, develop, and market music that was actually selling. So, is it a coincidence that alternative music had a commercial explosion following the introduction of SoundScan? I think not. And one of the very first bands to benefit from the collection of this new data was the Smashing Pumpkins. On May 28, 1991, three days after the first ever SoundScan album chart was published, they released their debut album. It was called Gish. The Smashing Pumpkins with I Am One from their debut album Gish, released on May 28, 1991. It was a slow seller at first, but it got to Alternative's 1991 coming up party a little earlier than most. Another landmark, the debut of Lollapalooza. The previous summer, this is 1990, Perry Farrell of Jane's Addiction was with some associates at the Reading Festival in the UK, and he was blown away by the crowd singing along to the Pixies as they played their song Debaser. Why can't America have a festival like this? Look at them, 50,000 kids singing along to this American indie band. And so he and his managers went to work planning what would eventually be called Lollapalooza. Instead of having a single big show in one place like Reading, Lollapalooza was designed to travel from city to city. The fact that Perry needed some kind of hook to commemorate Jane's Addiction's farewell tour also helped. The first go-round ran from July 18th to August 28th, 1991. And it featured Jane's, The Butthole Surfers, Rollins Band, Nine Inch Nails, Ice-T and Body Count, 
Living Color, Fishbone, and Susie and the Banshees. Ticket sales were, shall we say, a little on the light side. Promoters were skeptical that a tour full of weird bands would sell, so they didn't exactly race to promote it. But when all the receipts were counted up at the end of the tour, it was considered to be a big success. And by the time the second tour started on July 18, 1992, the alternative explosion was well underway. Audiences doubled, tripled, or even quadrupled. Something cool was definitely going on here. Jane's Addiction. They retired for the first time in August of 1991, but not before they started something with the first ever Lollapalooza tour. The last gig on that tour was August 28th in Hawaii. But the day before, something else happened. And nobody noticed at first. But eventually, this event would help set the alternative explosion into overdrive. That's next. Welcome back. I'm Alan Cross, and we're looking at the magical year of 1991. So much stuff happened that we're still talking about it. In fact, as a result of everything that occurred in 1991, we have all the music that we have today. It was the year punk and alternative broke out of its own parallel universe and basically took over the world. Here's a big date, August 27th, 1991. Two things happened. First of all, an unknown band from the Pacific Northwest released their debut album and nobody cared. At least not at first. It was only through nonstop touring and their frontman's tireless work at winning over fans that it finally started racking up sales. Today, this album has certified sales. And remember, it came out after SoundScan was put into place. So we have a pretty good handle on this number. It sold 11 million copies in the U.S. alone. Globally, the number is much higher, but because sales accounting was still suspect, not everybody was using SoundScan, we can't nail down a hard and fast number. But I'm going to throw out 20 million as a number that we can probably work with. In the process, this record became the first of the holy trinity of grunge albums. It's 10 from Pearl Jam. Pearl Jam and Alive from their debut record 10, released on August 27th, 1991. That very same day, an advanced single went out to radio stations across North America. It wasn't expected to do much. In fact, it wasn't even the label's or the band's first choice for a single. But they thought it might be a good idea to excite the freaks at a few commercial alternative radio stations across the continent. In other words, this was a marketing decision. Break the ice with the freaks to set up the release of the real single, and then we'd be off to the races. And listen, expectations were really low. If this album eventually sold 100,000 copies, everybody, including the band, would be thrilled. But even that was considered to be over-optimistic, which is why, on September 24th, 1991, a grand total of 46,251 copies were manufactured and set out to stores. That's not how it worked out, though. When that first song hit the radio, listeners went ballistic. When the single was released on September the 10th, it started selling out everywhere. And when the album appeared in stores on September the 24th, and remember there were only 46,251 copies out there, stores could not keep it in stock. Within eight weeks, this record was selling 300,000 copies every seven days. Suddenly, the freaks didn't seem so freaky. The market for this music, those slacker generation Xers that we talked about earlier, were being mobilized in huge numbers. Something was happening to rock music. 
But what? Smells Like Teen Spirit from Nevermind, released a little less than a month after Pearl Jam's 10, and the second part of the holy trinity of records responsible for launching a headlong dive into grunge. The third part of the trinity appeared in stores exactly two weeks later. Soundgarden had been laboring to get some kind of attention since 1984. Like Nirvana and Pearl Jam, they were from the Pacific Northwest, but were a little more on the metal side. Their previous album, Louder Than Love, in 1989, did okay, at least it made it onto the Billboard charts, but it was a little too much too soon for prime time. Their next album, their third, was different. Ben Shepard was now the band's bass player, and as more and more people started paying attention to Nirvana and Pearl Jam, more and more people were looking to Seattle for more. And Soundgarden? They were right there waiting. Bad Motorfinger reached into the top 40 on the American and UK album charts and into the top 50 in Canada. They were picked to open for Guns N' Roses on the Use Your Illusion Tour, an opportunity that Nirvana turned down, by the way, and they ended up being nominated for a Grammy in 1992, which they lost to the aforementioned R.E.M. Between these three albums, Pearl Jam's Anthemic 10, Nirvana's Punky Nevermind, and Soundgarden's Metalish Bad Motor Finger, people who were looking for new, fresh guitar rock had plenty to choose from. And it was upon this rock, Grunge was built. Soundgarden and Rusty Cage, a single from Bad Motorfinger, released on October 8th, 1991. The fourth quarter of that year was absolutely crazy. Nirvana's Nevermind was selling hundreds and hundreds of thousands of copies per week. Pearl Jam was creating a slow-burning buzz that just kept getting bigger and bigger. The cool kids were telling each other about the Smashing Pumpkins. R.E.M.'s Out of Time had turned into a major hit on both sides of the Atlantic. And everybody was talking about, just wait till next year when it comes to Lollapalooza but there was still more to come in the last three months of 1991. Actually, a lot more. Hang on. We are looking back at 1991, which, in retrospect, was one of the most awesome years ever in rock history. The very same day Nirvana released Nevermind, the Red Hot Chili Peppers issued Blood Sugar Sex Magic. Now, the Chilis weren't exactly unknown at this point. They'd had a breakthrough with their Mother's Milk album in 1988, It didn't get any higher than number 52 in America, but it sold better than any of their other previous albums, selling a little bit more than 500,000 copies. But then came the record that set them up as global superstars for the next quarter century. They had a new record deal, moving from EMI to Warner Brothers. They had a new producer in Rick Rubin. And most important of all, it was their first full album to be written and recorded with this young guitarist named John Frusciante. With the way he liked to experiment with guitar sounds and studio effects, he brought this whole new dimension to the band. Although the Chili's sound had nothing to do with grunge, they had that alternative label, and they were marketed that way. And it worked. At least 14 million copies were sold in the U.S., about 1.5 million in the U.K., and close to 500,000 in Canada. It was also a major seller in Germany, Australia, and New Zealand. And the album was just loaded with singles. There was Under the Bridge, there was Breaking the Girl... There was Suck My Kiss, and this one. Flea came up with the bass line while working on a side project called Hate with a few members of the punk funk band Fishbone. He had intended it to be one of Hate's songs, but the band broke up before anything could be recorded. 
Frusciante's part is said to be inspired by ghosts that inhabited the studio where the song was recorded. This place was a massive 10-bedroom house called The Mansion, and there's a long-standing legend that Harry Houdini once lived there. Probably not, but a lot of other musicians insist that there is some kind of paranormal presence in that house. At first, they had a lot of trouble getting radio stations to play this song because it didn't really have a melody. But after a couple of times through, you realize the song didn't need it. Melody is not the point. When the Chili Peppers went on tour in support of Blood Sugar Sex Magic, they felt the change that was going through music. Here's what Anthony Kiedis wrote in his autobiography, Scar Tissue. The Blood Sugar Sex Magic Tour seemed to augur a changing of the musical guard. There was definitely a sense at that time that the whole late 80s musical mentality was dying out. Cheesy pop metal bands like Warrant and Poison and Skid Row were finished. Cheesy family sitcoms like The Cosby Show were on their way out. There was something new in the air. I remember getting a tape of a new album by this band called Nirvana and driving around the valley in my Camaro with the top down and marveling about where these guys had come from. The songs were so out of this world. The Chili Peppers would later capitalize on this change in mentality by getting both Pearl Jam and the Smashing Pumpkins to open for their tour. Imagine seeing that triple bill, but it actually happened. The last earth-shaking event in 1991 came on November 19th when U2 released their seventh album, Octung Baby. This was the studio follow-up to the Joshua Tree from 1991. How the hell were they going to equal, let alone top, an album that was on its way to selling 30 million copies? Well, at first, it didn't look like they could. Early sessions did not work out. But after moving to Berlin at around the same time the Berlin Wall was coming down, things began to click. The band knew that they needed to reinvent themselves again, so they started looking for new influences. And where did they find that? Avant-garde electronic music, in heavy industrial music, in dance music, and in all that alternative stuff the kids were doing. They heard the way things were going, so they chose to follow that path. And given their reputation as a serious, politically and socially conscious stadium rock band, that was a really big gamble. Would people buy it? They also lightened up. Instead of being so serious all the time, they became more playful and fun and self-deprecating. Along with the Joshua Tree, Octung Baby is considered to be U2 at the peak of their powers. Didn't sell quite as well as the Joshua Tree, but it did manage to do okay. Maybe 20, 25 million units. And the Zoo TV tour that followed was one of the most spectacular road trips ever conceived. It was so expensive that it nearly bankrupted the band. But it did serve a purpose. It made them bigger stars in more places around the planet. Welcome to Zoo TV, y'all. You two on the Zoo TV tour in support of Octung Baby. So there are the highlights of 1991. R.E.M., the introduction of Samscan, the change in attitude of the Grammy Awards, Smashing Pumpkins, Lollapalooza, 10, Nevermind, Bad Motorfinger, the Chili Pepper Smash, Blood Sugar Sex Magic, and U2's Octung Baby masterpiece. And there's more. If we look at the layer below all that, we find Blur's debut record, Leisure. It came out in March. The release of Metallica's Black Album, which would go on to sell 30 million copies. Primal Scream released their brilliant Screamadelica album in September. That was the best album of their career, and a perfect bridge between the English rave scene and alternative. 
The Pixies came out with Trump Lamont. My Bloody Valentine issues the tremendously influential Loveless album. Massive Attack's Blue Lines album. All these records, essentially in a 10-month period. So no wonder the musical universe shifted on its axis so suddenly. No wonder we're still talking about all of them today. 1991 was one of those magical years where everything, and I mean everything, seemed to go right. Now, this isn't to say that there haven't been good years since for all rock fans. There certainly have been. I mean, 1992 was pretty great. You might have fond memories of 2005. It's all subjective, of course. But you got to go a long way to have a year as important and as influential as 91. In fact, you may wonder whether we may see it's like ever again. If you want to discuss that, or something else for that matter, I can always be reached through email. Just send something to alan at alancross.ca. There's my website, ajournalofmusicalthings.com, which is updated every day. It comes with a free newsletter, by the way, that delivers all kinds of music news to your inbox by 10 a.m. Eastern on weekdays. And we can also connect on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and Google+. There is always something to talk about, and there is always a way to connect. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. Talk to you next time. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts.